series called Effective Kingdom Prayer, and I'm actually using it kind of as a segue. Uh, three of our Wright State students are back for today, and then two more will be back at 1030. And uh, hopefully by uh, next weekend, most of the Wright State students will be gone because it's Labor Day weekend. So then the following weekend, uh, they'll be back. And then on September 14th, John's going to go back to teaching the second message. Uh, he's been relieved of teaching the second, the 1030 worship so he can work on the website. And then um, at that time, I'm going to go back to the Kingdom of God series, and I'm probably going to do two weeks of review for those who haven't heard the introductory chapters one, two, and three kind of thing. So in this case, well, we're doing Effective Kingdom Prayer Series. Some of these are, are on the podcast uh, on the website because uh, we basically recorded some of these messages this summer. It's a seven or nine chapter series. Uh, obviously, some of the chapters have multiple parts. So today we're looking at chapter 3D, Principles of Effective Intercession. Uh, at the top in, under Roman numeral one, there's series theme verses and a few quotes. And uh, I added a new quote, number three here, that really goes along with the topic of intercession. Then, and it's simply this, God has chosen to bind his name, reputation, and purposes to his covenant people. Many of you know I like the phrase inextricably intertwined. God's name, the, his reputation, and his purposes are inextricably intertwined. They're bound to his people. God has chosen to show his greater glory by actually working through us. It would be much less impressive if God worked directly all the time. Uh, he uses sinful guys like me that are at best partially sanctified and at best growing in the Lord uh, to do mighty things. And he uses mighty people like you to do his, his kingdom business. And in fact, it's our corporate testimony together that causes the world outside to either rever and respect the name of God or to disdain the name of God. And as you look through church history, there have been times, such as in the book of Acts, where it says that there was a great awe upon all the people and they, no one dared to join them and, and the, the church was respected and not mocked. This has happened many times in church history. Uh, we're on kind of a down trend on that right now, uh, in, in Western culture at least, and um, that is always one of God's ways of, of directing his church to say, hey, we've got to seek God, we've got to get back to more biblical models, we've got to recover more authentic Christianity. So um, God's people are to be foundationally concerned with the reputation of his name, the manifestation of his glory or his presence and the progression of his kingdom. That's actually what we're supposed to be praying about and what we're supposed to be doing. So um, Roman numeral two uh, is a, kind of a review of seven kingdom prayer concepts because this uh, series itself is inextricably intertwined with the kingdom of God series. And I'm only going to review a couple of these. Uh, look at number four. Uh, prayer is more or less effective. If you look at the two versions of James 5.16 in Roman numeral one, they talk about the effective prayer of a righteous man. So reading the reverse negative, reading comprehension always is better served by actually, when you're thinking about it, thinking about what it doesn't say, so you can better understand what it does say. And so effective prayer, uh, 
the James 5.16 is, is implying, and frankly outright saying, that there is more or less effective prayer. Now, we talked a lot about this when we did chapter 2, seven keys to effective prayer. Uh, these are not formulas whereby you uh, try to jump through the conditions and then sort of God owes you. If you actually analyze the parable of the, what we call the prodigal son, which is actually about the elder brother, the, the, the whole point was Jesus was trying to address the religious performance spirit that we all struggle with and that the Pharisees had in spades. And uh, he's trying to direct, he's trying to, he's trying to reach the Pharisees because they were upset that he was hanging out with tax gatherers and sinners and so forth. So he tells that parable and the parable is really directed toward the elder brother who wouldn't rejoice with his father when the prodigal son came back. And uh, the prodigal, the father was excited. The father threw a party. The father was, uh, because the direct context is Jesus is responding to their criticizing him for hanging out with tax gatherers and sinners. And so he tells them that parable because he's trying to reach the elder brothers. And if, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all struggled with performance-based religiosity. Um, so what we want to make sure we never fall into is believing that we can do these seven keys to effective prayer, and then somehow that's a magic formula whereby we've manipulated God and he owes us to, uh, to be more effective in our prayer. Rather, they're, they're a way of life embraced by a, a, a community of people, a group of people, uh, whereby we're, we're living in the presence of God and we're praying without ceasing. If you ever, if you ever struggled with uh, verses like when in 1 Thessalonians 5, when at the end of the chapter, Paul gives a number of instructions, and one of them is pray without ceasing. Well, who can do that? Anybody here ever pray without ceasing? Well, if you really take a biblical view of prayer, Prayer is walking with God. Prayer is communion. Prayer is two-way communication. Prayer is, is always being cognitive of the fact that you are his daughter. You are his son. Your acceptance is already a done deal. So many of us struggle with wanting God to love us or accept us and so forth. And I, in a broken culture, that's a real thing. However, uh, it's, it's uh, a thing that God wants to help you with because we all know intellectually that we, we don't have to do anything. We just need to, you know, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, to trust him, to rely on him, to cling to him. We just need to be a follower of him. He's wiped away our sins. He's, he's called you a son or a daughter. You are part of the family. If you don't feel very part of the family some days, you still are. And uh, therefore, uh, we walk in a lifestyle of communion with the Holy Spirit, and uh, the, the Spirit came to bear witness of the Father and the Son. He comes to do their work. So, in fact, in the kingdom view of the Holy Spirit, um, those of you from Kenya will know, know this a little better, but uh, during, of course, the uh, uh, 16th through 19th century, uh, Western Europe engaged in what's called imperialism. And Western Europe uh, conquered nations and controlled nations like all of, all of Africa, India, Southeast Asia, the, uh, the, the islands and so forth. And uh, they were, in our own colonial history, we were part of the British Empire, and our king was the British king. 
When you're a Christian, you're part of the kingdom of God, and your king is the Lord Jesus himself. But, the, the, but every king had to send a governor to the colony, and, the, and the, the purpose of the governor, who is really the Holy Spirit in the Bible's view of the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit comes to help us build kingdom culture to be sanctified in the, in, the, in the grace of God, to become more like Christ, to become more his servants, his ambassadors, and so forth. So if you are, you, for instance, if you were a British, uh, part of the British Empire before you gained your freedom, you're likely drink tea. And you like if you ever talk to many people from Kenya, especially when they first come over here, they speak a much more formal, uh, much better vocabulary kind of English than we do because they speak the king's English. We speak kind of a version called American that is sort of degenerated a little bit, at least from the British point of view, over time. So uh, prayer is more or less effective, and prayer is about doing kingdom business. Now, kingdom business, uh, Roman numeral 2.5, is forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, salvation, deliverance, healing, redemption, visitation, and the extension of his liberating lordship. If you want to know what God wants us to be doing as a body of people, read the Gospels, and we are to continue the ministry of Jesus. Everyone calls the, the, acts, the acts of the apostles, but the acts of the apostles are really the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ. When he, when he ascended on high, and was, uh, uh, he, just before he ascended, he said, wait, in Jerusalem till I send the promise of the Father. And he defined that by saying, for John baptized with water, and you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit many days from now. And so when I send the governor, when I send the Holy Spirit to John 15, 26, he will bear witness of me, you will be empowered to start going out and producing the kingdom to do the things Jesus did. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know the kingdom of God has come in your midst. And that's what we as Christians are to be about. So, you know, a lot of people point out that God, you know, does justice and does works of judgment and, and he chastises and so forth. But ultimately, God's will for, Jesus said, uh, I'm always amazed that John 3.17 isn't the most popular verse instead of John 3.16. But John 3.17 says that, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but so that the world would be saved. Because in fact, why would God send Jesus to condemn the world? Guess what? We had that already. Right? So the whole ministry of Jesus was to, to, was to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to extend forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, and so forth. Now, regarding, lastly, point Roman numeral 2-7, I'm only going to review three of these. Um, our Lord Jesus, in his teachings on prayer, which are primarily in Matthew 6, Luke 11, Luke 18, Jesus taught us to pray, and he emphasized two points. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And as we're going to see as we talk about the seventh principle of effective intercession, he taught to persevere in praying. Many a godly saint has, uh, has died in faith, continuing to pray for things that their prayers were answered. 
one of the neatest experiences the Lord ever uh, allowed me to happen is, is starting about 1970. There was a major move of God on Bowling Green State University campus that I was privileged to be a part of. There's two others in the audience that were part of that. And uh, we had a lot of prayer, and there was 10 very good Christian groups on campus, and uh, there were there were whole groups that got filled with the Spirit, and, and amazing things happened for quite a few years, really lasting into the mid-'80s. And uh, Youth with a Mission came to Dayton several years ago and, with a, uh, a program or an outreach and so forth, and I was involved in a lot of the prayer meetings, and I met this elderly man that's unfortunately passed away now, but he told me how this group of Christians had prayed for several years together that God would pour his spirit out on Bowling Green State University campus. And he didn't stay at Bowling Green State University campus long enough to see the answers to his prayers. But in fact, I really believe that's where the move of God that started in, the, in 1970 or so started with that group of Christians praying for that in the 50s. I love when I meet uh, young men and women who maybe were renegade from God or lost or whatever, and, and they come to the Lord. And then later, as I get to know them, I might get to know their grandmother. And then I really discover that it was their grandmother that prayed them into the kingdom of God. And uh, that happens all the time. So our Lord Jesus taught us to persevere in prayer, and we'll do more with that later. Now, Roman numeral four, the effective... Uh, I got to get on the right outline. I got two of them in front of me. Uh, yeah, Roman numeral four, effective kingdom prayer series. Chapter three, we're looking at five types of prayer. As far as I understand, all biblical prayer can fit into these five types or categories. And some of these are on the podcast. I have to admit, I wasn't thrilled with how the messages came out in a couple of cases. So whether you want to listen to them or not, it's up to you, <laughs> whether you want to endure that. But firstly... We spent two, two Wednesday nights on a recording on a reading Scripture as prayer. We don't think of Scripture, re, reading your Bible as prayer. But reading your Bible is, is actually uh, the first foundational type of prayer. Because we have a tendency to, to do petitions and tell God what we want in, in kind of a one-way uh, street. But real prayer is a communion with God whereby from his throne room, by his spirit, the, both in Colossians and Ephesians, Paul tells Christians that they are seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places. What's amazing right now is you guys are seated in these red cushy pews, and you're also seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places. And whether or not we have faith to experience that or realize that on whatever level, it's still true. So... Uh, you're, you're, uh, you're actually seated at two places at once. And um, so when, when we're in the presence of God, when we read Scripture, Jesus said the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart, and Scripture is the, is the Lord's abundance that fills his heart. So... Um, Scripture reading is actually a way to, to uh, hear from God, and it frankly produces a whole foundation for how we pray because 1 John 5, 14 says, we know that if we pray anything according to his will, 
How could you possibly know his will apart from the scriptures? If we know anything according, pray anything according to his will, we know that we have, that he hears us. And then it goes on to say, and, and if he hears us, then we have the things that we're, for which we pray. That one of the keys to effective prayer is to pray what God wants. I don't know if you've lived long enough as a Christian to be glad of this. I, uh, uh, show of hands, <laughs> that would, I don't even want to do that. But I am glad, I just celebrated my, this past week was my 40th anniversary. of. I went through a seven-month pr- process of, of coming out of being an atheist and a drug addict to being a Christian. And uh, the, final, the final days of that were, were uh, August 20th and 21st, 1974. I'm hoping that's significant because in the Bible, 40 years is significant, and it does really seem like this church is really starting to make some major breakthroughs and and uh, get rolling, and we have lots of trained people in key places, and I, I'm very excited about what, our future. But, um, it, you know, uh, I kind of lost my train of thought here on conversion here. here um, so I, I guess I'll move on. I, lost, I forgot what I was telling that for. It's just story. But, excuse me, apologize. So, secondly, we looked at re- pray, praise and worship as prayer. We looked at petitions with thanksgivings. The main thing, when Paul says in, to 1 Timothy in 2, 1 through 5, when he's talking about the first priority being to pray, he says to pray with petitions and treaties, supplications, and th- with thanksgivings. Th- being grateful and thankful is a bottom line thing that God wants to help us develop as a way of life. Because when you're grateful and thankful, you're actually posturing your heart toward the sovereignty of God. There are two root ideas in the Christian walk that if you can hold these always, you will never crash. If you crash, which people do, life is real and life is tough, they, they do so by losing hold of one of these ideas. One of them is that God loves you. If you, are, if you have been, you know, no one can come lest the Father draws him. John 5, 6, 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. If you are in Christ, if you've been convicted of sin, if you've been, the, the Greek word for conviction also means convinced. It's in, if you've been convinced of the things of the kingdom of God, if you, if you at, whether it was a gradual process or a quick process, if your life has been turned around to, to loving the Lord Jesus Christ, to understanding his atonement, to wanting to be his follower, to wanting to be more like him, to want to attain the call of God on your life. If that's happened, that's the work of God. There's no, actually no real room in the Bible for self-righteousness because you didn't choose him. He chose you. And uh, if he's done that work in your life, uh, then he has two things that are true of you at all times. One is he's sovereign. If you haven't memorized Romans 8.28, it's a good verse for all Christians to memorize. That, uh, and most of you know it already, that, that we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. You know, there's an old joke that a guy believed in that so much that he fell down the steps and he just thanked God afterwards and said, I'm glad that's over with. Let's move on to what the Lord has next. But, uh, you know, nothing, lousy bosses, uh, bad roommates, marital difficulties, overtaxation by a, uh, an overreaching government, all of these things are sovereignly put in your life and the second root of that is he loves you. 
And frankly, no matter what comes your way, real Christians have uh, people die of cancer at the wrong time and car accidents and uh, children who grow up to love God and are the most amazing children that they make you look like you were a good parent or something. And the real Christians have children who grow up to make you look like you were a bad parent, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, I always point out that uh, in, in Genesis, God the Father was directly the father of Adam and Eve. And I don't think he needed to read you know, James Dobson books on parenting skills. Uh, no offense to James Dobson. I love his books on parenting skills. But I think God didn't really need to read those books. <laughs> uh, he, you know, how could we say God was a bad parent Yet his, his first son and daughter of humankind rebelled against him. They messed up. They messed up in a way that's affecting us all to this day. It's amazing the implications of uh, our actions generationally. So um, that's petitions with Thanksgiving. Today we're going to look at intercession. Next week we're going to look at spiritual warfare. Uh, intercession, I really couldn't do in one message, so we're going to have uh, the first half on uh, today at the, uh, it's, it's a little, uh, I actually tried to wrestle with possibly doing the 1030 message now, because of course we'll have more people at 1030, but I really couldn't figure out a way to do that. So uh, those of you who are here today, will get more out of the 10, at 930, you'll get more out of the 1030, but intercession, we're going to look at the principles of biblical intercession. And we're going to look at great model intercessors at 1030, great of the Bible. Now, I want to say this. I think intercessory prayer, if we really let, listen deeply to these principles, is that which we engage in the least. And I think it's that which we should engage in the most, and it's the most effective of the five types of prayer in terms of extending God's kingdom. It's actually one of, when Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in Matthew 6.33, the first aspect of that is that we have a ministry to God, and he wants to convert us deeply, more deeply to the image of Christ, sanctify us, mature us. And so part of seeking God's kingdom is to, see, is to seek more of the reign of God to come into our life, and not just theoretically, but experientially by the power of the Holy Spirit so that our life would exemplify the fruits of the Holy Spirit as listed in Galatians 5 and Romans 8 and other places. So, um, intercessory prayer will actually help you pray out of the right posture and relationship with God more than any other kind of prayer. Because in intercessory prayer, we are first and foremost identifying ourselves with the people we're praying for. You can't pray effectively for someone who you have a condescending spirit toward thinking, I'm in a better place with God than they are. Intercessory prayer, first and foremost, admits that I'm a, I'm a sinner in total need and, uh, and starts there. And I'll, we'll develop that as it goes. Let me just read a few verses about intercessory prayer. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he, that is Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, if you can get the, your uh, mind more around that prayer is not just an activity, but it's a lifestyle, Jesus was always in prayer, and his entire life was an intercession for us. 
and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. And First uh, John 2, we, we, he, he writes these things so that we might not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is actively interceding for you. Isn't it nice when you screw up that God is saying, uh, you know, this is my guy, Father. I'm standing in the gap for him. I, I want you to see him through the righteousness that I provided, through the atonement I provided. Um, when we fail, put yourself back on the cross. You fail when you get off the cross. So uh, Jeremiah 22.30 says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. That's a really intense verse if you think about it. God is saying, I search for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the, for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Just flip over to Isaiah, back page, Isaiah 59, 16 says this. And he saw that there was no man and, went, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm... God himself, through Christ, brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Now, um, we don't think about this that much. If you do a search like under the you know, Bible gateway or something under the word seek, or seek the Lord, seek God, or whatever, one of the things that you'll have a tendency to see is that 95% of verses about seeking are, uh, are God telling us to seek him. But you can't always uh, take that, that the Bible is to be interpreted cer certainly just by the quantity of verses about a second. There are set, because God, because you have to step back and analyze it a, a little deeper. There are about 5% of the verses about what God seeks for us, in us and for us. Now, the reason God doesn't address it more is because the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit to us. But... Uh, it's also a revelation of God, so if you step back and see it, th th there's a truth about God that we don't think about much. God is actively seeking for people. Right now, God is sitting on the throne, Jesus at his right hand, millions and myriads of angels and saints worshiping him. Look at Revelation five, 4 and 5, Isaiah 6, things like this. And he is actively working by the Holy Spirit to bring his kingdom deeper into the hearts of Christians, to restore his church, so because he, he has a purpose for his church to spread his glory throughout the world. And the Bible makes it clear, Psalm 110, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, that's a time word. The, Jesus is going to sit at the Father's right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. It will come about in the last days, Isaiah 2, that the mountain of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. God is going to fill the earth with churches that manifest his glory, that represent his character right, that represent his priorities right, that, with people who know him deeply. And they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Jeremiah 31 through uh, verse 31, chapter 31, verse 31 through 33. And that's the purpose, that is what we're praying for. That's the purpose of God. That's what intercessory prayer is all about. Okay, so 
when you when you put Jeremiah twenty two thirty together, I search for a man among them who would build the wall and stand in the gap, flip over, I, and he saw that there was no man. God is actually searching. Second Chronicles two sixteen and nineteen. I always don't have enough room on the. I always confine myself to what I can cut and paste on the front and back of a page, so I can't always put all the verses. That's a verse you might want to circle, underline, highlight. But the Second Chronicles sixteen nineteen, read it in context, is even better. But it says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth to seek for someone that is fully His and to strongly support them. Now, of course, God's view of supporting you isn't the American dream of prosperity gospel. You might, uh, you know, you might overcome Potiphar's wife's temptation and get thrown in jail for it, but that's all good. <laughs> that's his purpose in sanctifying you and preparing you. That's his way of taking you deeper in Christ to strongly support you. Just because uh, you're a Christian doesn't mean the IRS won't audit you or, or whatever number of things could happen. Um, but God is seeking throughout the earth. John 4.23 says that God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But we forget that it says that God, is, such worshipers God is seeking. Do you know that God is seeking and actually part of his gracious, forgiving, redemptive work in his life is he takes us deeper and deeper into our true worship of him. Worship isn't just when we sing and we sing in tongues and we sing great songs of theology before God and stuff. Worship is a whole way of life whereby our will gets absorbed in his will because we love him. One of the great pictures of, of, of the relationship with God in the Old Testament is that a Hebrew servant uh, if someone got in trouble in, in Hebrew society and they, lost, they made bad financial moves and so forth and they lost their property and whatever, they could actually sell themselves into servitude to a fellow Israelite who was more prosperous and become their employee. And uh, it's called a bond servant. At the end of seven years, the employer was responsible to have taught you a trade, helped you understand the ways of business better so that you had a better foundation to succeed, and you were sent out. But you, were, you had the option to say, I love my master and my wife, and I'm not going to go out. That's actually the biblical view of piercing of ears. Uh, <laughs> you would actually get your ear pierced to say, I belong to my master, I love him. And that's really what Paul is calling himself when he starts his letters by saying, Paul, a bondservant, Doulos is the Greek, a table waiter. He's saying, I'm a, I'm a slave of Jesus, not because I have to be, but because I love him so much. Okay, so the Lord is actually seeking to make you that kind of worshiper. That's what Jesus is saying. Isn't that exciting? If we're honest before ourselves... Uh, I get distracted at uh, at worship at times. Um, I don't know if you do. Um, and God is there to, is trying, and, and, you know, I always say, God, help me. Help me be a better worshiper. Uh, God is willing to do that. He seeks, the best thing that could ever happen to you is to become an enthusiastic worshiper of God who just loves to sing and worship and, and serve the Lord because you're, and because he is, because of who he is. God 
Luke 19.10, I hope we can all relate to this verse. Jesus said, I came to seek. Now, there's a lot of things he said he came to do, but he says, I came to seek and to save us who are lost. Those who are lost, it says, but not personalizing it. You know, the truth is, if you're sitting here today, it's probably because you didn't have a chance. <laughs> you know, I became an atheist uh, at a young age. My parents were Catholic. I, By the time I was eight or nine, I was studying stuff and thinking, this is all nonsense, and, and this is just a tradition that's been handed down for hundreds of years, and people are just going to church because their parents go to church, and there's nothing to this. And I became an atheist. And... Uh, Shortly after that, I became a drug addict, and I became kind of a wild guy, and we won't go into any more than that at this point. Uh, but um, when the Lord eventually opened my eyes and set me free and called me to himself, it was not because I was seeking truth. We all think that when we first come to Christ. Of course, uh, if you have Christian parents and you were wayward at all, which many of us can relate to, then you... Uh, you know, my mom was always praying for me. And one of, the, one of the things I had to go through at the age of 17 and 18 when I first became a Christian is I would go all over these places in my hometown and I'd run into people that, my, that were friends of my parents and they were always at my parents' prayer meetings at our house and stuff. And before I was a Christian, I hated these people. I mean, I just hated them. First John 3 actually says, I think it's verse 15, says, we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. All of a sudden, I love these people. But I actually didn't like the one part where they would say, I've been praying for you for like five years. And I'm like, oh, my God, no wonder I didn't have any chance. But, you know, <laughs> you know the, Lord, the Lord came to seek. And you didn't seek him. He's seeking you. And it's kind of like stroking a cat. You know, like if you stroke the cat backwards, they don't like that much. <laughs> so, you know, you just say to the cat, listen, I want to be a cat lover, so why don't we all get along by, just turn around. <laughs> I just stroke this way. That's how we, you know, like we run from God, and then we turn around and we're like, I've been searching for God all my life, and he set me free. Liar. Okay, so... I just want to make sure we're firm on this point. I guess I'm going to end up finishing this message in the, sec in the second message. But I want us to be very firm on the point that God is actually seeking intercessors. I want, I want that to be a very firm thing. And if you ask God, he will make you an intercessor progressively and more in, in a greater way and more effectively. And in fact, God's goal for a community of Christians is that they would become an intercessory people. Uh, Romans 8, 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Uh, we'll go on from there. Hmm. Let me see what I can do with seven principles of effective intercession, uh, we'll pr which we'll probably go into at the next message. First, um, an intercessor is a person that has a burden, a concern, a passion from the heart of God uh, that the Holy Spirit uh, has given them, the, that, uh, and that burden contains compassion for the lost. 
the, the whole reason for the church, not the whole reason, some re, one, of the, one of three main reasons for the church is Jesus was constantly having, it says he saw the multitudes, that they were distressed and they were like sheep without shepherds. And if you notice, every time it says that, the next thing he did was he turned to his disciples and said, Jesus was concerned that the multitudes that were following him uh, were hungry and that there, uh, it was getting late and there was no, you know, they would have overwhelmed the nearby towns if they went looking for food and so forth. So out of this compassion, he tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. And when he easy for me to say, blesses the bread and breaks it, he doesn't give it to the multitudes himself. He gives it to the disciples. Guess what? You work at a hospital or a school or a programming place or a bank or a heating and air conditioning wholesaler or a factory. And God has sent you there as his representative. And the closest they'll ever get to seeing Jesus is by you, how you work, how you handle your relationships, how you handle your emotions. If you are a pizza driver, be the most godly pizza driver around. You know, if you are a school teacher, have the people at the end of the year saying, man, that school teacher, he really loves all the kids. And it's amazing what, you know, what, what's in that person's heart. And if you're a nurse, I understand like the whole nursing thing has become so driven by prophets and so forth. Uh, one of the frustrations almost every nurse I know talks, talks about is I got into this business to love and care for people. And now they set it up where there's really no time to do that. Well, still, do that as best you can. Be profitable. That's part of uh, representing God to the people who own the things. But, but whenever you can, spend an extra minute with someone. Can I pray with you? Uh, you know, represent Christ. So Isaiah 53, we'll, we'll start with these seven principles of effective intercession in the second meeting today. So we're not going to get to uh, the second outline today, but... Uh, Isaiah 53, 12 says, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yes, he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, if you know anything about Isaiah 53, it's one of, um, oh, the five or six uh, easiest to see Jesus in chapters of the whole Testament. I mean, Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament, and that's part of you know, in, in Luke 24, he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. As God opens your eyes, you see Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. But Isaiah 53 is kind of a no-brainer. The whole thing is about the intercession, the atonement that Jesus made, right? And this verse 12 sums up what the whole chapter is saying. And he says that uh, he bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. We'll start with uh, that. And number two, um, intercession. And, I, you know, because I don't know if everyone will be here for the second meeting or Sunday school. I really want you to hear this. In, the reason intercession is so will help you grow so much is you can't do it if you don't identify with the sins of those for whom you're interceding. That's the whole key to it. Um, if you actually haven't put yourself in their shoes, 
Jesus became like us in every way except for sin. And when we get to chapter 3e and we look at the great intercessors of the Bible, the thing we'll notice most is certain guys like Joseph, Nehemiah, Ezra, people, there's an amazing number of guys in the Bible and, and ladies, Esther, uh, Abigail, that um, the Bible records no, nothing sinful about them. They're, in fact, uh, recorded as some of the most godly people who've ever walked with God, and they completely said, we have sinned when praying for God's people. And we'll pick it up there at the next meeting.